This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. Welcome. Welcome back to Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women and sex addiction. I'm Amy. I'm a recovering sex addict, and I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. So kind of start off, though, today, I want to remind you about our 30-day talking back challenge. So if you haven't listened to episode 12, that's our part one of our talking back challenge, you want to make sure that you go back and listen to episode 12 and, and really declare war on those negative thoughts and negative shaming voices that are in your head. I'm super excited about this. Also, if you haven't gone to the website for episode 12, make sure that you do. There's a worksheet there that you can download and you can also join the Talking Back mailing list. And there you'll get additional information as well as extra worksheets as we go along. So make sure you do that. We'd love to have you join us. Super excited about that. Also, don't forget that Worth Recovery is now available on iTunes. Super excited about this. So if you're an iTunes fan, you can go there and subscribe. Just search for Worth Recovery. You can subscribe, comment, leave us a rating. We'd love, love to hear how this has helped you and the different uh, things that it's done for your recovery. Also, with so many announcements today, um, I'm excited that in April we're going to do our first in what I hope is many, many, many episodes featuring um, other women, women's stories. We have two lined up, but I would love to be able to add your story to the mix if you're interested. You can go to the website, worthrecovery.com, go to the women's stories area and submit uh, your name and information there, or you can just send me an email directly Amy, A-M-Y, at worthrecovery.com. Okay, so done with announcements. Let's get into our episode today. Today's episode is episode 13, and it's the continuation of our deep dive series about the 12 steps. So just to remind you, we're going to spend four episodes, basically one month, on each of the 12 steps in recovery. We started with episode seven, where we kind of introduced the 12 steps and how do they apply to sex addiction and and what are the different versions and why do we use them. Episodes nine and 11, we started our deep dive into step one. We've studied powerlessness and we've studied unmanageability. Today, we're gonna talk about methods of working step one, right? There's a saying in recovery that says, it works when I work it. You heard that before? So what exactly does that mean? What does it look like to work step one? How do I work step one in my cup recovery? How do I make it a part of my life? For me, when I look at step one, we admitted we were powerless over our addiction and that our lives had become unmanageable. I really believe it's about giving voice to the story, giving voice to the story that got you here, giving voice to those powerlessness moments, those unmanageability issues that you had in your life? What have been those moments for you? What have been your powerless moments? What have you lost? What is the unmanageability in your life? And for me, step one is really about, the first part of step one is really about giving voice to that story. 
A lot of times you'll call it, they'll call this a step one inventory, right? But it's more than just bullet points of what you've done. The method that I like to use when I'm working step one is to kind of break my life up into chunks, chunks of time. I usually do like five years at a time. And, and I like to look at what was going on in my life during those five years. Now, like I said, some people like to do just a bullet list, but I prefer a story. I prefer a narrative. And why do I prefer a narrative? Why do I think narrative is best? Well, first of all, the AA book and the SA book and the SAA book and the SLAA book and pretty much every recovery book that there is, is full of stories. They're not full of bullet lists. Like, can you imagine that? You open up a book and be like, here's my name, my sobriety date, and here's a list of everything I did. You might connect with that, but you might not. The whole point of of story, the whole point of narrative is for us to be able to connect with and accept our own story. That's why I believe story is so powerful. It's not just a list of things that happened to me or things that I did. It's actually the context of my life. It's putting context around my behavior. I firmly believe that all behavior makes sense when you understand the context. It might not have been right. It might not have been the best option or the best decision. It might have harmed a lot of people. But when the context of the story is added, your behavior starts to make sense. When I started this, I was highly intimidated. I thought, how in the world can I write my life story, my addictive story. It took me several months. Actually, it took me a good portion of maybe four or five months to actually write my story. And it was it was extensive and it was long. I worked on it with my therapist and there was a lot of different things. But as I worked through it and wrote the story, I saw things in my life that I had never seen before. It was incredibly powerful. One of those things was Just the number of times that I have moved in my life. I hadn't noticed that. When I wrote my first story, I was 35. And I didn't realize that up until that point in my life, I had moved 29 times. 29 times. That's almost once a year. You know, very few places that I lived in were even longer than a year and a half. 29 times. I hadn't seen that before. I hadn't seen that as part of my addiction, but it was. I would run away from things. And writing that out helped me to see that. Another really big takeaway for me when I wrote my own story was the connections between my childhood acting out and my adult acting out. I I had a really big time in the middle there where I didn't act out sexually. And I really kind of looked at those two pieces of addiction as kind of isolated incidences with isolated forms of acting out because they were drastically different. But as I wrote about them and connected with them, I saw that they were really just extensions of the same problem. And as I understood what I was doing and what I was looking for as a child and what I was doing and what I was looking for as an adult, I found that they really were very much the same. Also, as I said, like I had a big, there's a big portion of my story in the middle where I didn't act out sexually. And I thought my addiction was just dormant and I thought things were going, you know, really great in my life. And I felt like I had some semblance of control over what was going on. However, as I wrote about it, I realized that I might not have been acting out sexually, but I was acting out. I was acting out a lot. 
But I was just using other things to act out with, other ways. I was using food. I was using anger. I was using control. There were a lot of different ways that I was acting out, even though I, I wasn't sexually acting out. I've seen people who do the bullet version who just kind of give their list of acting out behaviors and what they did. And then just, I'm just speaking from my experience more often than not, I don't really see that connection to their story of their lives. They don't see the things that were going on in their lives. They don't really get the the big complete picture. And I, I think that's, I think that's, that's a disadvantage to them. Because they end up with blind spots and they end up not being able to see all of the damage that they've caused, not being able to see the unmanageability in their life and not being able to really connect with the pieces of their story that they were, where they were powerless. Step one isn't just a list of everything I've done. That's step four. Step four, when I do my sexual inventory, that's my list of everything that I've done sexually. You know, step one is about seeing my powerlessness and my unmanageability. And that takes story. That takes a narrative. That takes understanding and seeing all of the different forces and different influences that were going on in my life at the same time. Again, all behavior makes sense when it's put in context. And a story allows me to put that context together. It helps me to see what was going on, why I felt like I had the choices that I did, and why I chose to act out the way that I did. Putting story to my addiction and my behaviors and understanding that context has given me more power and more determination to stay sober. It also opened up those blind spots for me to see the work that needed to be done in order for me to move forward in a productive life the way that I wanted to. Now, just giving voice to my story is not enough though, okay? In step one, the step says, we admitted we were powerless over our addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. It's not just enough to own my story, to write it down, and then to keep it to myself. The step is written in plural form. We must share with others. We must admit we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable. And we do this by sharing our story. When we share our story, we start to answer the question, will someone still love me and accept me if they see me, as my therapist used to say, warts and all, right? I hated when he said that because I had warts as a child and I got made fun of for for it a lot. But ultimately, that is the question. Many times we are afraid of our own story because if I write it down, if I put it all together, if I put it all in one place and someone reads it and someone knows exactly everything that was going on, will they still accept me? Will they still love me, warts and all? Will they still want to be part of my life? Will they allow me to be part of their life? And that's really the question that we're trying to answer. When we admit together, when I share, when you share, and we admit together our powerlessness and our unmanageability, we start to challenge that belief that no one will accept us if they knew our whole story. And that can be a damaging, paralyzing core belief that no one will love me, no one will accept me if they know my whole story if they really knew what I had done, if they really understood what was going on. That's still something that I think I struggle with a little bit. Will people really love me? Will they accept me if they know my story? 
But the first step to really challenging that core, that faulty, faulty, it's a faulty core belief, is by giving voice to our story and then sharing it. We admitted we were powerless over our addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. Now, when I wrote my first full story, <laughs> it was huge, right? Mine was like 35 typed single space pages. I, I know my therapist used to say I was an overachiever. And you know what? That's okay. I'm okay with that. Mine was, like I said, 35 typed single space pages. I told my story from the beginning of my life until I started recovery. And then I read the whole thing to my therapist, to my sponsor, and to my home group. And when I did that, it took uh, probably like nearly 60 minutes to read. But I've never, ever read that full version again to anyone in my life. I worked on it with my sponsor and my therapist. I put the whole narrative together. But no one really wants to listen to 60 minutes of my life story. Maybe, but not usually. And so... I was challenged to really come up with what's the 20 minute version of my story? What's the 10 minute version? And then what's the five minute version of my story? There's a lot of value to narrowing down the story to the basics and then to the bare bones. This is when we start to see what really matters to us. And this is when we start to see what really influenced us and what really shaped our own story and our own experiences, we can start to see like, what were those turning points? What were the turning points in our story that really shaped and changed the direction of where we went? I've shared the five minute version of my story probably hundreds of times. It speaks to the essence really of why I'm doing this and why, why it's important to me. And it gives me an opportunity having that kind of done, memorized, knowing what it is when I have the opportunity to talk to people about addiction, when women call me, when whatever the situation is, I'm prepared. I'm ready to share what changed my life. I'm ready to share why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I can relate to other people as I share and understand the essence of my own story. If you haven't, I would highly recommend that you spend some time giving voice to your story, owning your own story. Remember that step one, our step one inventory or our story is about powerlessness and unmanageability. Write those moments down. When was I powerless? When was my life unmanageable? How has that affected me? If you haven't done that yet, even if you're months or years into recovery, I would highly recommend it. It changed my life. Seeing the connections and owning my own story has literally changed my life. But is that it? So I've written my story, I've shared it, I've got all my variations, and now I'm done, right? I'm done with step one. I'm ready to move on. I've admitted I was powerless. I've admitted the unmanageability in my life, and now I'm ready to move on to step two. Yes, moving on to step two is essential, and we must continue to work and move on in our steps. However, there is another part of step one that sometimes we forget, and sometimes it comes back to bite us. There's another portion to this story. With the admitting that we were powerless over our addiction and over ourselves and over our lives and the unmanageability going on, we now have the opportunity to take responsibility. Once we recognize our powerlessness, we are now responsible for what happens next. This is the essence of the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, my powerlessness, 
courage to change the things I can, and then the wisdom to know the difference. We must begin, now that we've admitted our powerlessness, the things I cannot change, and we've accepted that, we must begin to find the courage to change the things we can. That's the second part of step one that sometimes we forget. That begins with stopping our acting out and removing all of like what AA would say our old bottles or our stashed bottles, removing all the triggers from our lives, having the courage to control the things that we can control. I love this quote from the Sexaholics Anonymous White Book. It's on page 64. It says, quote, we stop practicing our compulsion in all its forms. We can't be sober in one area while acting out in another. There can be no relief from the obsession of lust while still practicing the acts of lust in any form. We stop feeding lust. We get rid of all the materials and all other triggers under our control. We stop feeding lust through the eyes, the fantasy, and the memory. We stop relishing the language of lust, resentment, and rage. We stop living only and always inside our own heads. Close quote. What areas of your life are you still allowing to feed your addiction? Do you need a filter on your phone? Do it. Do you need a filter on your computer? Do it. Do you need to delete a phone number or maybe many phone numbers from the contacts on your phone? Do it. Do you need to block certain numbers from your phone? Do it. Are there movies in your library that you need to get rid of? It's time to do it. Is there music in your library that you need to get rid of? Do it. However it is that you feed your addiction, now is the time to take responsibility and get rid of those things that feed them. Now that you know that you are powerless over them, holding on to them says, eh, I'm not quite willing to admit my powerlessness, at least not all the way. When we hold on to those old bottles and old triggers, we're turning our back on powerlessness. Once we know we are powerless over something, it's now our responsibility to do something about it. That is what the serenity prayer teaches us. So let me give you an example. Early on in my addiction, really early on, I read an article in a magazine titled Additional Uses for Fruits and Vegetables. Something like that. I don't remember exactly. But basically, it listed and demonstrated ways to use fruit and vegetables sexually in masturbation, with partners, just other ways to, to use them, right? So I admit that there are still vegetables to this day that are triggering for me. There are some I cannot have in the house. I am powerless over them because of how many times I used them to act out. Now, I wasn't willing to admit that early on. It took me a while to admit that and to get there. But once I saw that in my recovery, I had to take responsibility and admit my powerlessness and not have them in the house. I'm not perfect at this. There were holes in my first step. I continue to find holes in my first step. The point is that once I see something, I understand my powerlessness over it. It's now my responsibility to do something about that. And if I don't, if I choose not to do something about that, then acting out is now my responsibility. I can't expect to pass the sobriety test when I'm tempted, when things happen, if I'm not willing to do my part. I can't expect others to help me if I'm not willing to do my part. No one can do my recovery for me. Not God, not my therapist, not my 12-step fellowships, not my sponsor, no one. Only I can do it. 
And at this point in time is when I start to show my willingness to take responsibility and give up those things that I am powerless over. And that is part of recovery, willing our willingness to do our part. Once we see we are powerless, we now have a responsibility to take action. Most recently, let me tell you, I there's a band, there is a band that I adore. Um, I have loved their music from the time that they, they're very popular. I've loved their music from the time before they were very popular, when they had a different band name and all sorts of things. I love listening to the lead singer sing. I, I love the whole thing, but their music is very explicit. And early on it was like, okay, I can handle it. It's not that bad. It was kind of disguised, but the longer that this band goes and the more recent music that they've put out. It's even more explicit than it was before. Just recently, the last, I think maybe two weeks ago, I finally deleted the music from my library because I'm powerless over it. And when I listen to it, though I love it and sing it and dance it, the fantasy and the continual sexual thoughts that I have all day are not worth it. It's not worth it to me. It's not worth it to me to have to fight all day for three to five minutes of listening to a specific song. That is the obligation that we have in the first step. We do the best that we can. If you find you're not willing to let go, pray about it. Talk about it. Tell your group members. Watch their heads nod and they'll be like, yeah, me either. There were things I wouldn't do either. You know, it's like instead of turning our backs and running joyously to the solution, sometimes we just kind of seem to slowly step backwards, still looking at our addiction. I've been there. I'm still there some days. Some things are easy to admit our powerlessness over and some things are not. But this is how we practice step one. We admit our powerlessness and the unmanageability we have and we take responsibility to get rid of the triggers that we are so powerless over. This is definitely a continual process. This is a continual process that we do day after day after day. I'll tell you that initially for me, I I hated it. I felt like admitting I was powerless was weak, was stupid, meant I was incapable. I didn't even want to say the word powerless. This is not something that the world kind of willingly accepts. This is not something that people easily talk about, that they're powerless over something, that there are things in the world that they are powerless over. But I, I just want to warn you that it doesn't mean it isn't true. There are actually more things in this world that I am powerless over than I have power over. And coming to terms with that puts peace in my heart and in my mind. So I want to ask you, have you completed step one? Have you written it out? Have you owned your own story? Have you shared it with others? It's a powerful process. I have seen so many, many women share their stories for the first time and even many times after that. And the connections that they make in their own lives is powerful, but more often than not, it really is the fact that someone knows my whole story and still loves me and still accepts me. And that is the gift that we offer each other in 12-step fellowships is the idea that I know everything about your story and I am still willing to accept you, to be your friend, to support you, to love you. And that's where we start challenging those really core, core faulty beliefs that we are not worthy. Have you done several versions? 
Can you share when the moment is right? Do you know what to share? Have you taken responsibility and gotten rid of all of the triggers in your control that you are powerless over? Again, if you haven't done these things, even if you are several months or years into sobriety or recovery, I really encourage you to work on it. Take some time and do it. Own your story. Understand the powerlessness and unmanageability in your lives and then take control of those things that you can control and be ready to move on to the next step. We have one more episode to finish up step one. In our next step one episode, episode 15, we'll talk about how this concept, powerlessness, unmanageability, owning our own story, affects other areas of our lives outside of our sex addiction. How can I use step one in other areas of my life that I want to change? I'm excited to share with you some of the things that have worked for me and how this really is a life principle, not just an addiction principle, but a life principle that we can use to move forward and to really build the life that we want to live. As always, I want you to know that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how you feel right now in this moment, no matter how powerless you feel or how unmanageable your life is, You are worth recovery. You're 100% worth it. I have not heard a story in recovery that I have not related to. I have not heard a story in recovery that doesn't touch me deep in my soul. I have not heard a story in recovery where I have wanted to shun the person or walk away. I know what it feels like. We've been there. And understanding that and helping each other, listening to each other, sharing our stories is what helps us move on and what helps us move forward in recovery. Stay the course. Keep up the fight. One day at a time. I think about you. I pray for you. I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.